Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I am your host, Sean Glennis, and I'm here with my co-host, Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? I'm doing, Arlen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm cool. Uh, doing doing my best um, to be alive <laughs> post-COVID, just, just uh, recently post-COVID, um, but happy to be back in the saddle, so to speak. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Back in the saddle. Yes. This uh, this episode we have uh, later we talk with uh, our guest Esther Rosenfield, archivist and writer. Um, and before that, though, I kind of wanted to talk to you about. Uh, well, we What's both have a sight and sound ballot. <laughs> oh sure, brag bragging big bags. Well, I only bring it up <laughs> because I'm curious about Wiseman's trajectory on this list mm. as um canopy uh his deal with canopy became a thing in 20 what 17 and the last ballot was in 2012 True. um so i'm very curious to see how that changes things uh obviously and i mean probably more important than that our influence um, <laughs> true no but uh I mean, there's definitely going to be a title, if not two, on mine. But, um, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I've been poking around since we got the invite at the 2012 list, and just you know, there's I think close to a, I think there's over a thousand individual films. I don't remember exactly how much. There's a ton of them, um, but seeing you know which ones got votes uh, ten years ago, and it it's a pretty solid spread you know some there you'll get uh aspen on there for instance you know oh, wow. yeah you know um there's obviously i'm just looking through it now but um you know follies is on there high school's on there hospitals on there but like it's it's so difficult with weissman in particular because like there's so many great ones right and like the nuances of everyone's tastes are, you know, such that, that building a consensus, um, is difficult in a way that, you know, like, okay, the Wells film's going to be Kane, the Hitchcock film's going to be Vertigo, right? Like, you know, uh, um, the Lynch film will be Mulholland Drive. Like, like, you know, what I, I think you, yeah. you and I have both kind of talked about which Weissman films are going to end up there and maybe, maybe, you know, the, there will be a bit more consensus now that people have seen more of more people have seen more of them um but like it, it's hard to feel like it's not going to be kind of um diluted i guess a little bit just because right. there there are so many great ones you know yeah yeah you're right um i guess i was thinking and still kind of do think that like um as time goes on, I think welfare is going to separate itself from from uh, the heap. Um, yeah. That just seems to be one that really hits people for for obvious reasons, and it's great. And it has like sort of that that mix of that like early CV like foundational style to it, but also like has so much going on in its own right that um, as a Wiseman film. Um, and just so many great characters that uh, I think um, I wouldn't be surprised if that in in the next, you know, 
uh, Ballad or Two becomes like the one of the bigger documentary yeah. titles. Yeah, and and you know, hopefully, uh, any the forthcoming uh, uh, runs of the the restoration uh, will further that reputation. Um, but I mean, I think uh, I don't remember exactly, but I think only Shoa and uh, Man with a Movie Camera were were the only docs uh, the last in the top one hundred last time. Is that mm. interesting? Poop sure. dreams didn't make it. I don't think so. No, but I will be <laughs> changing that single handedly. <laughs> <laughs> a weighted ballot. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, this has been us on the side and sound ballot. <laughs> um, uh, but th- thank you, kind editors who uh, must have listened to the show to yes. even know to invite us. Yeah. Yes, well, and I don't know if we mentioned before, but the thank you, Sight and Sound editors, for blurbing us in your magazine um, a couple months back. But uh, And yes, thank you for listening just in general and appreciating the, the, the program. Um, we hope to keep doing you justice. Um, so you don't have any studs turkle to read or anything? Oh, yeah. yeah. He, he didn't uh, talk to uh, Jockey or something. Yeah, uh, so this was from uh, <laughs> Horace. <laughs> 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 yeah, no. I, Short I, chapter. I, I, did, I did look, um, but no, there wasn't one. <laughs> um, interesting. Uh, well... Uh, maybe he'll return, but uh, which we are... I mean, I guess I guess speaks to something we're going to talk about later of like you know like yes, Weiss, yes Weissman's choice of institutions when there's something like kind of essential and there's something maybe more like just kind of a weird interest that he picked for you know who knows what reason. Yeah, this was uh, this would be a good one to ask like exactly how he came about or what was turning in in his brain at that point. Um, so Racetrack, which is um, <clears throat> a 1985 film, I believe it's billed as, um, but was shot in 1981. Um, so well before he moved to color film stock. Um, and it was delayed because of some other projects and some funding trouble. Uh, at least that's the story. But it aired on uh, June 4th, 1986. And um, there were... A few reviews, right? I think we have like five or so. And I think there was one that, one or two that uh, eluded us um, in the confines of our our research. But um, I think we can start with with some uh, reviews. We can start with a returning guest, John Corey of the New York Times. Of course. We talked about him last episode, but um, in his review, he, he... he uh, talked about how cinema verite was a limited art form, as we, we mentioned. Um, and, but, but he calls this one of Wiseman's better works. Um, and it's really just an awful review. <laughs> yeah. Va- vacillating between boring and entertaining. Uh, yeah. um, he, he says nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think he does get at something I, I felt where Weissman is after, like, an essence of this place mm-hmm. rather than maybe, like, a... A more thorough like examination 
I guess you might say, you know, there, there is a quality of this, um, that, that I felt was like impressionistic, you sure. know, uh, uh, about just kind of existing in within the milieu and, and less so about maybe, uh, I don't know, like, I don't know. There, I'll I'll take that yeah. back. It's about every Weissman film is about everything, uh, <laughs> but well, but it, it, this one is, I think, you know, even for Weissman heads, maybe a, a, kind of elusive, right? Like it, yeah. it does it does always kind of like when you feel like there's something you can grasp onto, it starts to slip through your fingers a little bit, and you know, I, I definitely think. Of course, you know, I'll say this with all of his films, but at this one in particular, I think I really benefited from uh, multiple viewings, you know, before we got on here to discuss it, just to kind of uh, cement, you know, what, what we think he, he might be doing. Yeah, yeah. We can talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, this one, and then probably this one and Sinai Field Mission so far are the ones that really took that second viewing to really piece together better. But um but Corey uh, says he really likes the Morris, the John Morris celebration, but doesn't yeah. go into why, other than vaguely saying like that Wiseman is capturing the social fabric of the world. But basically, I was reading this review and thinking like if I was John Corey's editor at the prestigious New York Times or the failing New York Times, if you're <laughs> uh, listening to this now, but um, uh, I would have just sent this back with like a bunch of like whys in the margin, like. Mm-hmm. Like, why, why are you writing this? Why is this your point of view? Like, y- you don't get a whole lot from him. But um, there's another one from the New York Times, but it, it's like more of an interview. And that's by uh, Daniel Aja Rose. Um, yes. Another one that starts off by calling him an elf. El- elfin, yeah, for sure. Elfin. He can't escape it. But he tells, Wiseman tells the interviewer that uh, a day at the races is one of his favorite films, which you and I watched for this. Um, and he says he, he wanted his film to mimic the sad comedy he sees at the racetrack. Um, mm-hmm. Says a lot of the things that we, we talked about on the, the store ep- episode about like not being condescending and avoiding sloganeering. That type of stuff is starting to recur. Yeah. He, he notes also similar to what we've seen the past few films that that Weissman is softening you know something we know Weissman himself would bristle at um especially in this film that features you know graphic surgery and birth and sex um uh, but he calls it also unusually lyrical uh, as as if you know that this is a, an exception for Weissman, you know maybe maybe a bit of that impressionistic idea, um, but I I was appreciative that um, they were talking about uh, humor as being mm-hmm. kind of a key part of his work that that gets overlooked and um, he notes that uh, this would have been twenty years since he shot at Bridgewater. And, you know, maybe I think I think you and I have talked before about how kind of at this later stage in his career with so many films under his belt, that that humor is kind of more of a thing people notice and enjoy and expect, you know, within these films. But maybe like, you know, now 20 years into the project, something that that people are maybe starting to come around to a little bit more, you know, of, of uh, getting away from the the serious muckraker institutionalist mm-hmm. idea, you know. Yeah, he says he says more than the technical 
technological um, advancements, the biggest change in his work has been a deepened commitment to dealing with complexities of a subject and resisting cultural general generalizations. Um, but he also does say that he's working with lighter cameras and advanced mics and editing equipment as well. Yeah. Um, yes. He says it's hard for him to gauge the reception and impact of his films um, because he's just like editing for months and then it goes on TV and he gets a few letters and phone calls. And But by the time he gets those, he's already moved on to the next film. Right, right. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you, I, I admire it, you know, I think, I think you, 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 there's, with Weissman, there's such a sense that, um, because he's so prolific and always moving on to the next one, like, he's uninfluenceable, you know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like, like there, there's no, I feel like reaction to critics one way or the other, you know, he just steadfast and and keeps doing his thing for sure um there uh is the return of tom shales of uh the washington post yes um he calls this the latest of uh, wiseman's impressionistic immersions which is kind of what you were getting at earlier a super super film from a super super filmmaker (laughs) (laughs) super film super super um yeah, you said you really liked this this review. Uh, what what stuck out to you? Well, I think I think something we talked about uh, was as critics kind of taking a more of a long view approach. You know, situating his new films within his body of work. Um, he calls it an a work of informational art that tells its story in distinctively televisionary syntax. Yeah. which is something we'll talk about later, but this this idea of, like, you know, Weissman on film, Weissman on public television uh, is a really fruitful thing to be considering. But, I mean, w- did you have that sense? I mean, we'll, we'll talk a lot with Esther about the presence of TVs within the film, but the, I guess, the methods that Weissman employs being, you know, particularly televisual to you? Um... I didn't really think about it that way. It's funny because uh, Tom Shales actually mentions, he said he, he compares um, Wiseman's ability to imbue images with uh, enigmatic sadness, as he says. Um, mm. He compares him to Henri Cartier-Bresson, um, the uh, famous uh, photographer. And that's, that's, in terms of other mediums, that's what I was thinking a lot about here is like, Davy really flexing like his black and white compositions. And like, I think this film is like sort of, uh, not in a slight way, but it's like people watching, like the, it's mm-hmm. like people watching the film. Um, yeah. that's, that's a lot of what Wiseman is interested in. He is, is just like looking at characters here, but, um, Davy catches so many of the, the patrons, um, in these like, like, you know, bad posture or like interesting, um, faces as they watch the race or watch TV or just like super excited. But, um, he, he just kind of like catches them in, in their place and is, uh, you know, just sort of like using documentary as this like genuine piece of like documenting people in their time and place. But Davey is doing it with this like often beautiful composition, um, and maybe maybe Wiseman was like, hey, 
we're getting rid of this black and white stuff. <laughs> this is yeah, I, I, I think I think you know Fred loves a lot of things, but if there's there's one thing he loves, it's a good bench sitter. <laughs> and yeah, the, yeah, exactly. There, the there, t- there's plenty of benches, you know, throughout Belmont, uh, with with people hanging out on them in in different positions, but like. It, it is it's rich in that it's very rich um in in people watching i agree i i do like that um uh shales ends his review uh lambasting the the reagan dominated public mm-hmm. television landscape yeah, I was he says say, that yeah. they should be giving like wiseman carte blanche um and but they're not interested in giving you know space and money to to like people who are making challenging works yeah, and I mean, you know, this will be just a few years before the whole, like, piss Christ, Robert Maplethorpe, um, NEA, like, controversy about, you know, federal funding for the arts uh, generally. Um, but, you know, we know that, I, I, God, I, th- I think, you know, Reagan was going to slash um, budgets for these kind of things even more, but it, it was Charlton Heston that, like, advocated against that and convinced him not to. Uh, if I recall something hmm. like that. Um, but you know, you, you think of, you know, what gets funded and, um, you know, what gets platformed. Um, and, and it was, yeah, refreshing to see Shales kind of share the sentiment Weissman was himself was expressing in the interviews around the store, you know, uh, that seemed, seemed to be kind of something in the air about like, things were changing for the worse Mm -hmm. uh, in that space he says would deny composing paper would deny composing paper to beethoven and canvases to picasso the the pursuit of excellence (laughs) in public television has fallen to priority of zero true yeah i mean and you think about now too i guess um would have been starting right around this time uh and and actually someone Siskel mentions is Ken Burns and I guess you know there'll be an interesting relationship between Weissman and Burns throughout the years as being yeah. like you know the PBS <laughs> guys right you know and mm-hmm. I think I think the like stature uh in in the public perception of Ken Burns as it relates to PBS and like the way PBS promotes and platforms Burns films relative to Weissman's films uh, kind of gets to some of what we're talking about here of like, you know, why this sort of uh, very codified, like um, easily digestible, historical, deterministic approach uh, that is, you know, never for want of funding, right? Like right. Bur- Burns can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it with whatever resources, you know, are available. Um, but and as yeah, long wh- as he wants. Yeah. Right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. As long as he wants. Um, yeah. You know, and I mean, I'm not like a Burns hater, you know, I've got jazz behind me here. I love um, the, the Frank Lloyd Wright one, unforgivable blackness. Um, but there are some clunkers in there too. Um, but like, yet Frederick Weissman, who seems to be doing so much more to, um, 
show the ambiguities and and ask us questions about American society. Why why is he always struggle? And I mean, once the film's done, PBS is like all too happy to show it. Um, but you know, they at, uh, at least at this time, you know, weren't helping him get there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, that'll be interesting to. We should pay attention, or maybe he'll just keep popping up in in discourse. But um, there's a short piece in Variety attributed all i saw attributed to bro bro right yeah <clears throat> but it's not very artic- articulate about why but uh the author really likes the film says it captures some nice whimsical touches and, and thinks it might be the film of his to open distribution doors which i i don't I know, understand yeah. <laughs> I know. yeah i thought that seemed unlikely uh for someone to call this one out but i mean you know it resonated with bro so <laughs> <laughs> good, good for them. I mean, I, and I also like, you know, there, there are different superlatives that get thrown around oh, with Weissman, but uh, Bro ex- extends uh, his greatest documentarian status to all of North America, not just the United States. Uh, uh, like others. <laughs> finally, overtook uh, <laughs> Warndale, what's his name? Uh, King, Alan King. King, Alan King. Um, yeah. Uh, there is a piece in the Chicago Tribune from Gene Siskel, which is not a review as much as a feature where he's talking about documentaries and he's just, uh, he's clueless, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it was, no. it was cool. <laughs> it was cool to like, it, it's the, he's making the opposite point of Corey it was in the New York times about the store oh, about sure. like documentaries in general, right? Like Siskel mm-hmm. is talking about streetwise and the up series and Shoa um, as like, you know, documentary is experiencing this boom. And like, you know, I think he, he goes further than probably I would have in terms of like, you know, box office and business kind of stuff and like broad appeal. Um, but it, it is nice to, to get somebody situating Weissman within this kind of expanding nonfiction cinematic yeah. space. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but you get the sense that, that he's, he's out of his comfort zone. Like he doesn't actually know what he's talking about, but he's like <laughs> sure, a reporter yeah. it's, you know, and he's trying to piece it together. Um, but, and you know, I, he talks about racetrack as a much more polemical film than anyone else. And almost to the yeah. to the point where you kind of think he's trying to, he's trying to put something there. That's not there. Um, he talks as if Wiseman is like uncovering for the racer, what it takes for, for this racing world to exist. And talks about like decrying the way man tears apart what nature mm. created <laughs> yeah, yeah, and right. a world of unhappy contrasts. And it's just kind of like a little dramatic, um, mm. to the point where it's just kind of like, it is nice to see him included in this. It's nice to see a big name like Gene Sesco, but, um, but I like this line, uh, Wiseman has found in the racetrack, some kind of display of the way atoms move throughout the universe and suggest that human <laughs> beings are mesmerized by movement. And if things yeah. move fast enough, they'll even bet on how fast they'll move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, you know, that makes me think of, uh, turtle racing bars <laughs> but what is that? You know, oh man uh just like a bar with turtle turtles racing that you could bet on i don't oh. know there there was one in chicago i know on on clark i think um but i think it's a thing beyond that um but you know even the slow ones get get the betting hmm. 
Uh, but his his basic point is that documentaries are going to like beat out fiction films if they're covering the same territory like every time or whatever, which is again, it's just like not the best criticism. Right. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're both cinema but you know doing different things with different aims but i mean you know it as somebody who like i guess uh prioritize documentary in my own like personal viewing like it, it is nice to hear that sentiment expressed uh because it's something i you know somewhat agree with and you know i've talked about before it's terms of like documentary being really the most cinematic mode of filmmaking um so so i did appreciate that from from old gene siskel Cool. I wonder if uh, we'll see more of either him or his bosom buddy, Roger. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Um, it's the first time they've either have come up. Yeah. Um, moving on. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, uh, what what uh, <laughs> what do we make of this, the style of well okay well it's it's interesting first because there isn't a whole lot written on this film um right like once we get past the contemporaneous reviews Mm -hmm. um there is bubkiss uh pretty much (laughs) like thankfully um mamber's diary entry is pretty long Mm -hmm. um and which i'm thankful for um we are no longer in Benton and Anderson territory. Oh, man, so sad. Yeah. I miss I miss you guys. And um Barry Keith Grant's book, the chapter that it's in is is included in uh Primate and Meat. Um but he really doesn't talk about racetrack yeah. all that much. No, um, yeah, it kind of skips over it. Yeah. Um kinda of, and, and a lot of times that it's brought up it's in like parentheticals. Um mm-hmm. which like uh, he does have have some interesting points in the, in the opening about uh, about like these parallels between humans and animals, like how we we see a lot of the same. Uh, um, we see like feeding and grooming and competition, like found in in separate ways between them. Um, you know, you think about like the jockey being groomed and the horses being groomed, and mm. they're them each having these places where they eat. Um, mm you just see the cafeteria and, and whatnot in the stable, but, um, which, you know, kind of reminds me of primates title that like coy question about yeah. who's the primate and whatnot, but, but right. there really isn't a whole lot from, from grant on that. So, uh, which makes it even trickier because it's, it, we usually like rely on him to like, <laughs> open it up beyond our comprehension. Um, and this is just like, as you said, like a pretty elusive film. But, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, well, it it puts the onus on us and right. <laughs> a little more, and and you know, I, I I thought we had a pretty good combo uh, with Esther coming up for all y'all, um, but you know, I think this is we always make the case that there are no minor Weissmans, um, but you know, as as if you have to call some that you know this is probably among them at least in terms of reception and consideration and just like overall viewership um and you know that could be for a variety of reasons um but it it is just like you know it might 
like like you've said before, you know, something like welfare right is self-evident, you know, why he's looking at that. And like, you know, we even as he goes into more cultural spheres uh like in model and the store, you know, it it it's clear kind of what his theses are what he's using those subjects to sort of interrogate and and reveal to us um so i mean i think maybe more than any one individual film i could think of you know this one is really situated within the overall kind of oeuvre of you know and like like the the things that come from it uh really do come from the interrelations uh, between films, you know, and, yeah. and there, there are plenty to call out here. I mean, I, I mentioned later, uh, we get another shot of um, Metropolitan Hospital, like we mm-hmm. did in Model, uh, as if to, you know, the closing shot in Hospital is like, the world goes on and, and is oblivious to the human drama happening within these walls. Right. And like, I guess, you know, when he's in New York, he's going to want to kind of hammer that home and be like, you know, all that stuff's still happening over in this building. Uh, don't forget about that. But, you know, we're going to go look at some other stuff too. Um, but like, you know, there's the, towards the end with the ballroom, you know, and we're in Times Square and we see these billboards, you know, it's impossible not to think of model, you know, when, uh, a, a horse is getting a feeding tube shoved down its throat before surgery, you know, we're thrust back into follies when, uh, the, someone's brushing a horse's teeth, you know, it makes me think of basic yeah, training, basically. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, and just like the way that they're sh- the the horses are shot, like in the, these like cells, like reminds you of Follies as well, um, for sure. And yeah, Mamber opens his journal entry of this film by saying that like one of the pleasures that are emerging during his his exercise of watching them in such close succession is is uh, the sense of living in Wiseman's world, and mm-hmm. I get that sense particularly with racetrack while watching racetrack um since it does like elide that central action or like exciting structure and self-evident nature um and so you're kind of like left with in this like hard to grasp but in some ways like quintessential like direct cinema object um Mm -hmm. and member goes on to say that like some things might seem minor at first and then they they turn out to be quite complex um, and there, there's definitely stuff in here that I don't quite understand why it's included or what it, it adds up to. Um, and even why, or if, even like members approach in his journal is like through a, a series of eight preoccupations of Wiseman's, like how this fits within the Wiseman, uh, project rather than like talking about it more like it, as, as its own thing in, in a vacuum and, and I came away from this really do like thinking that this is stronger in its cumulative function within like the Wiseman project, like the church scene, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that is like a good example of like the added power of like thinking about how it relates to and reverberates within like films or like the ways that the animals are treated. Like this is obviously a big part of like his project about animals. And that makes like the ways that those other films resonate over this and how they all resonate over like future animal films um, 
makes this like interesting to me, but, um, but there is really like that cumulative function. Yeah. The, the thing about like living in Weissman's world or like maybe better yet, like seeing the world through Weissman's eyes, you know, something I've been thinking about, I was reading, um, Barry Keith Grant edited, uh, a book called documentary documenting the documentary. And I've been, I've been reading some, some of the pieces in there. And there was one on a film, a Canadian doc called Daisy, uh, the story of a facelift, um, which was, was really good. Um, but there's a section in it talking about the documentary of, um, persona, uh, kind of, you know, when you think of maybe like, like Michael Moore, you know, the way, uh, the filmmakers, um, insert themselves into their films in various ways and how that, you know, impacts the narrative, how it impacts, uh, the meanings of the films and all that. And of course, you know, we know Weissman would, would be loath to do something like that in one of his own films. But I think there is this way, especially cumulatively where like, you know, once you kind of get a sense of like his interests and sensibilities and things you, you do start to imbue like Weissman's perspective onto the things you're seeing. You're, you're, you're given a place to start from kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, with all that under your belt that, that helps you navigate in a way where if you were watching any of these films cold, you know, would be much more difficult to do. But I think like, like that accumulation, uh, across you know a uh, couple decades now almost um there there is a bit of his this persona idea i think where where like what you know about just like weissman's overall deal i guess is like is informing what you're seeing and how you're engaging with the films yeah and and it helps you like um make sense of this like Vertovian style that I think really comes out here that we've talked about before. And, you know, that other people have referenced, you know, like, uh, Barry Keith Grant's opening chapter called man with the movie camera, um, for instance. Um, but this sort of like surveying a place, finding conflicts and, and, and other observations and like the spontaneous spontaneity of simple life. And then like using montage to, compile structure and meaning around these points points of view like having what you're talking about like this this um this uh cumulative understanding of her of his perspective helps you make meaning of what he may or may not be doing here um and obviously stuff like we talk with with esther about like tvs and coming to that with more knowledge of Mm -hmm. what his perspective was around the medium at that time that like viewers just coming to this film without that just aren't like, it's going to be a different perspective, um, Mm -hmm. which is great. And, and I I think that Wiseman is also banking on that. Like it's inevitable. It's unavoidable. Um, But in terms of like making sense of it in a way that is fruitful for us, um, it definitely helps. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, something, um, you noted on, on the first round go around on letterbox was like, you know, obviously this would come after the store, even though it was shot beforehand because model and the store are such like a ready pairing. Right. I think though, it's interesting 
to to think about this film shot in between those two uh as you know how how does it relate how is it in this conversation of image making and selling Mm -hmm. and like you know there there is um as we'll talk about later you know a lot of mediated images uh through the through tvs um but there's also you know what what else is at play in terms of like what's being sold like what are the the ideas and values being espoused to you know the public by this institution in particular Mm -hmm. um and like you know i think they are largely image oriented uh in in similar ways as has been explored in the previous two Mm -hmm. films you know it it's about uh class and prestige and like um uh uh the desire to attain a better status for yourself you know, uh, as represented through gambling, right? Like that, that's, yeah. that's the hope, right? Is, is to be like the people, uh, who you see, uh, throughout, uh, model be, be like, uh, what's being sold, be able to obtain what's being sold in the store. Uh, and, and the, the racetrack is some people's maybe only opportunity to achieve all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a sense of like, um, possibility at the racetrack, maybe like naive possibility. And, and I think it's interesting too. We don't, you know, even though there's betting going on, like we don't characteristic for Weissman, we don't get many outcomes, you know, we don't know who's, who won big, who lost big, you know, like, like there's, there's one scene early on, uh, I think it's like, the first race we see and there's like one onlooker who's just like kind of running around really excited later on there's someone watching a tv who's kind of jumping around you know like he might have won something um but like i guess it it, it's less about what actually happens and i mean i think we could safely assume most people there are losing money uh including the owners and uh, apparently Mm -hmm. like like the trainer says like anybody let me tell you something about this business owners got no chance in there you know really they have no chance because they put so much money up they get nothing in return when mr evans went with this horse He's been in the business 16 years, and they don't mind how many millions he put up. He just got even, and he still got the quality. You know, he still got his equity. The idea of, of hope, I guess, the idea of, of mm-hmm. uh, maybe even deluding yourself into having hope that, that you know, you're, you will reach this certain uh, level uh, through uh, a horse. And, I mean, that's, that's the thing is, like, everyone in this whole endeavor is projecting, uh, uh, you know, their their most positive outcomes onto these animals you know uh unbeknownst to them obviously uh you know and when we do get um an outcome that uh is that is you know this like um this horse that wasn't supposed to win who does win Mm -hmm. uh at the end of the film like wiseman just downplays it so much that it doesn't really (laughs) doesn't really feel meaningful um like it should and when maybe that ties in with the ephemerality that we talk about later 
Yeah, I mean, it's like, it is it, only architecturally do we know, like, the Belmont stakes are a big deal, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's like the last race of the Triple Crown. And like, like, you know, there's a lot of attention on it and stuff. But like, uh, aside from the presence of media, really, you know, there's no sense uh, in the winner circle of like how big a deal within this world this really is, I think, you know, only only by going idea back to this idea of like mediated or television mediating reality for everybody. It's like only by the presence of TV cameras and, and reporters with like CBS logos on their microphone. Do we have a sense that this is something with like national attention placed on it? Right. Yeah. And that it's like worthy of that, like that the public deems it worthy of uh, that attention and that it should be like, they should be making images about this thing. Um, there's like yeah. a lead there and yada yada. But. And you th- you think about what another doc about the same subject might have done, and it's like this would be the big climactic, you know, ending, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's all leading up See to the stakes, good. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there you go. So like like you know that that Weissman denies us that you know as as he is wont to do, um, uh, you know, just like. I think we talk, I talk a lot later about like whether or not there's a critique happening here. Um, but I think, I think throughout he is consciously like downplaying the sort of glamor and prestige, uh, except for, you know, the ballroom scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting kind of, uh, going back to Barry Keith Grant, he says that, um, that there are no stylistic discoveries here, unlike in Primate and Meat. Um, mm. And I, I kind of, I, I tend to agree as well, which is probably why he didn't, he wasn't inspired to write more about it. But um, he says it resembles some of the early films, which presumably he means like hospital and high school in a scene. But yeah, um, but yeah uh, which gives it that sort of like for Wiseman heads only uh, thing or <laughs> right. like, yeah. or it's nobody's like favorite Wiseman film. Yeah, like, um, but it's it's certainly interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's um, unmissable, I guess, because it is a Weissman film. Um, but it it's it's a quizzical one. It's a puzzler. You know, it's it's just um, it's gonna take a little bit. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Do you got any other uh, notes on Prime or Racetrack? <laughs> um. Still got some t-shirts. 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 Uh, you know, just 100% cotton. Screen <laughs> screen printed by hand. Uh, uh, in that just classic spiffy Zipporah f- typeface that's on the cover of all his, his films. Uh, the name is, is spelled correctly and everything. Yeah. Oh, we spell believe me i spell check that <laughs> over and over again um and our guest esther has one i know she's been rocking it That's uh right. so yeah uh feel free to email us about those weissman podcast at gmail.com 15 dollars plus shipping and uh they're really fun that's right uh speaking of uh weissman podcast that wisemanpodcast at gmail.com we did get an email um 
Once again, from Emmanuel, who emailed us about um, Canal Zone and, and the use of Spanish uh, in it. Um, and Emmanuel made an interactive map of all of the locations of Wiseman's films, <clears throat> which is uh, quite fun to play around in and also just kind of like see, uh, you know, places that he hasn't touched, places that are like pretty crowded. Um, and also to see like the international um, locations of his films. Um, and that I will be putting, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So if you if you want to check that out, you can. Um, and you can also just send us um, emails yourself of uh, interesting things or just questions um, about the work. Yeah. Um, th- thanks, Emmanuel. I mean, that, that was, it's fun. You got like, cool little icons for each of the films and each of the spots and like you know it it does drive home you know new york kind of being this this epicenter this being one of the new york films um Mm -hmm. and yeah uh, uh also you know we have the the confirmation of what uh, Weisman talked to us about in the interview with uh, uh venice film festival premiering his new oh, yeah. short the couple uh so that is exciting if you're going to be in venice <laughs> uh who knows what what Get the next the opportunity phone. will be <laughs> um but uh, if any of you make it out there uh feel free to to email us with with your reactions we're we're very interested feel free to, to like see. take in a camera and <laughs> or take your phone in and just like live stream it very very curious to see where this ranks for you on the spectrum of uh seraphita and the last letter and uh i miss sonia henny <laughs> <laughs> yes uh but you know what that means what an, an, an extra episode of wiseman podcast of course yeah wow i mean you know hope Hopefully we get the opportunity and maybe we can we could uh, jump around chronologically uh, to discuss it just because it's, you know, we, we haven't done the show while there's been a new Weissman film released. So yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Cool. But you you're you're speculating based on that. You, th- you think he's brewing something up, don't you? I do. It's just uh, my crystal ball. But um, I mean, if the. If the main, it, it, I guess it depends on what's happening with the restorations and whether he's done with that, yada, yada. But um, uh, I just think that there are few enough masks in parts of the country that you could, that I'm sure there is something on Wiseman's like master list somewhere in the country where they don't wear masks anymore. <laughs> like there's a large part of the country where that is happening and has been happening for like a year now. Um, so I think if he really uh, wanted to and had the funding and was, like felt able to and physically and like John Davey was available, all that type of stuff, I feel like that main hurdle it has been cleared. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and as we know, you know, it, it it's a month of his life uh, shooting that. So, you know, that does seem doable at this point you know to depending what what the topic was but um get in there before the next variant i know yeah i mean just tell me about it you know i I wish there were more masks out there after the (laughs) last two weeks i've had um but give give me your give me your best uh 
your best speculation on what what the next Weissman doc could or would be? Uh, putting me on the spot. Let me pull up this uh, map again. <laughs> <laughs> I I could see like uh, it's not quite the season, but um, like Dallas Cowboys training season or something. <laughs> hmm. I have no idea. Um, yeah, I I would I would. Uh, be happy to think about it more but what what about you oh i think my my dream for him is to do airport um right, right. i don't that's i don't a, know if that'll ever be possible it seems like there would be like just such a headache of like permissions from different agencies and you know corp corporations in order to achieve that but like that that would be incredible i think you know so i think you know we think he's had two of his last three were kind of community films in a sense, you know, uh, Monrovian city hall, you know, so I think he's probably going to move away from that and focus on more of a central location, uh, type deal, I guess. Um, you know, um, but who, who knows what that could be only Fred. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't hit like the Pacific Northwest or, um, hmm. or the, the Southwest really. So, um, good point. Yeah. There, yeah. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot left to discover. Obviously. I mean, it could go on forever, but, um, yeah. let's keep our fingers crossed for that. Okay. All right. Well, I hope that, uh, you all enjoy our discussion with Esther, um, about racetrack. Um, till next time. See ya. Hey. No beer. No beer. Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. We're here with our guest, Esther Rosenfield. Um, how are you doing, Esther? I'm doing pretty good. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Our pleasure. Um, so you started watching Wiseman films this year. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I saw... National Gallery is actually the first one I ever saw. Okay. I watched that last year um, for a class for my grad program, and I thought it was so good. Um, I, I, I like, I loved it. Um, but it didn't. It wasn't until earlier this year that I sort of uh, fi- decided I'm just going to watch all of them. I think I'd put out a tweet like you do, like, "Oh, where do you start with with Frederick mm-hmm. Wiseman? Like, what are the good ones to get to?" And there was just such a variety of answers that I was just like, "Oh, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just watch all of them." all the way through. Why not? Um, and that'll be like a project I do this year. Um, and when I, around the time I hit racetrack, um, I got the invitation to be on this episode. So it worked out perfectly. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're excited to kind of, uh, um, talk to somebody who's been on the same path, but who had like seen less, um, obviously like national gallery gives you a bit of a idea of where he goes, but um, but yeah, it is funny that question. Like when people do ask, not not uh, intending to go through them chronologically like you are, but like where do you start with Wiseman? And the answer in, invariably goes to Titicut Follies, um, which is kind of a red herring, but also makes sense kind of thing. I guess I don't know. Um, but but you've also been you you've been um, stopping for like repertory opportunities, right? Yeah, I had like three in a row basically just three chances to go see um films that were i had not gotten to yet 
um, the, on 16 millimeter um, in Chicago when I happened to be there. They showed public housing at the Gene Siskel Center. Um, and then here in New York, where I live at the Metrograph, they showed um, Central Park and Belfast, Maine. So I decided to cheat in those cases just because it <laughs> seemed like, you know, I don't want to I don't want to miss the opportunity to go see them in theaters, see them uh, on 16. So I skipped ahead a little bit. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think we I want to hear about those experiences because, I mean, <laughs> obviously I saw public housing, but um I'm so jealous that you got to see Belfast in 16 millimeter because it's so good. But um, yeah, uh, what was it like sort of like breaking out of those like home viewings to like see them in a cinema with with people and also to to break out and like see um, break out of the mold of like this developing career to like these later works that kind of show more of uh, where he ends up. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was not too much of a jump in the sense that they're not too far off from where I had left off. But like um, in my watch through, the only color one I've seen so far is a uh, model um, of the documentaries. The store. Um, or the, oh, I'm sorry, the store. Yes, you're right. Um, and then Racetrack goes back to black and white, of course. But um, mm-hmm. so seeing all of those in color, I think, was definitely a big jump. It felt like it felt like skipping ahead. It felt like he had. <laughs> He had made a, a development. He had made a move that was uh, in a, made it a different era of his career, for sure. Um, but also just generally, I think seeing them in a theater is, is an interesting experience because, you know, especially with like um, Central Park and Belfast, which is your uh, three and four hours long, respectively. Mm-hmm. And, and um, public housing is, is over three hours, I think, too. Um, you know, it's kind of cliche, but, you know, being in a setting that sort of forces you to put 100% of your attention on the screen is so different than watching them, you know, on my computer or my TV at home um, when it's uh, a much more, I think, uh, easily distractible environment. Um, Or even not that, just an environment where um, it's not as uh, overwhelming, I guess. It's not as completely, you're not as, like, subsumed into the the film. Um, And it was, it was, public housing especially was, was, that was the first one I saw in a theater. It was really overwhelming because of the, the sound, especially. Um, you know, his his soundscapes in his films are so incredible. Actually, when we get to Racetrack, I'm going to talk about that. But mm-hmm. um, always has this, you know, incredible uh, layered mix of, of noises in, 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 in the background of every scene. And seeing in, in a theater when it was so loud was at first it was like, wow, like this is, it's like, mm-hmm. it's heavy. It like, it like weighs on top of you almost. Um and, um, you know, I think uh, Central Park a little less so. But then when you get to Belfast, Maine, it's like there's all those scenes in the factory and it's just like these shrill, clanking noises. Of, you know, it's it's really, it was a really incredible experience. It was it was really different, I think, than seeing them at home. I was talking to Arlen about just like the, the feeling of seeing public housing, like just visually how much better it looks on film than on these like uh you know dvds um just like how much brighter the sun looks and and whatnot but but you're right about the sound uh which is another thing i talked about in that that uh one scene in particular in public housing where like the woman's teaching other women about like sex ed like these adult women about sex ed and and just like the layers of like babies screaming uh, (laughs) it really is something that feels so uh much more like powerful and um loud uh yeah yeah um 
through racetrack though have there been any like big favorites so far like what have, have you really like stuck to um you know it's funny because um right now i think central central park is my favorite and that's what i skipped ahead to um i think that one is 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 so fun um so so many great strange people in that movie um but in terms of before racetrack i think welfare is really the one i've seen that really just that blew me away um that whole ending sequence with the guy who talks about waiting for Godot um, and then sort of his <laughs> ramblings turn into like he's this prayer um, that just like completely knocked me flat. Um, I think that's an incredible film. Um, and another one is, I, I, I guess this is the time I'll bring this up is um, hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, earlier this year, um <laughs> mostly because I was finishing my grad program and all kinds of health problems, just stress related. Sure. So I had to go to the ER one night because I was having this really intense vertigo and I felt like I couldn't stand up Um, and it sucked. But then um, the next day, you know, I was just resting and um, I got to a hospital and hospital is about the hospital where I had gone the previous night. It's about that uh, New York Metropolitan, which is like, you know, I don't want to say where I live, but very close to where I live. Um, so that was a weird, crazy experience that I'll sort of like, it's not, I don't know if hospital is one of my favorites, but I'll always kind of like yeah, yeah. cherish that weird experience. Huh. Interesting. I expected you to say Canal Zone. <laughs> I, I love Canal Zone too. Canal Zone is awesome. Um, another great weird film about very weird people. Oh yeah, certainly. Um, so I guess uh, getting into... Um, racetrack it, it I, I don't know uh what you guys like first impressions are but um it's 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 a weird it's a weird movie <laughs> yeah definitely um the, i mean I, I mentioned the sound a second ago and the thing that actually struck me right away about racetrack is how quiet it is especially at the beginning i mean especially with you know this the film with this subject i went in expecting to, it to be a lot of like you know, sounds of people shouting and talking mm. and lots of like lots of background noise at like a big public event. But the beginning of the film, the opening scenes are so, so quiet and, mm. um, you know, almost like this peaceful ambiance, um, which I think is, you know, probably deliberately, you know, drawing this contrast between what you expect to be at when you're at a racetrack, the environment to be and this more sort of behind the scenes uh, part yeah. of it that's very more much more sedate. Yeah, I think people have mentioned that it, it reminds them of like meat, uh, the opening mm, yeah. of meat with like those yeah. you know cowboy horses and stuff that is just like so, like idyllic and far removed from, you know, the context of the film is going to deal with them for the rest of the film. Yeah, yeah. There there are a lot of explicit callbacks in there, and I mean, uh, primary for me was Hospital. You know, we got another shot of Metropolitan, like in Model. Um, but the one it was recalling for me as it relates to the sound was primate, um, Mm. just because so much of this, uh, does play, it doesn't have that kind of signature Weissman patter going on throughout, you know, Mm -hmm. there are speeches and conversations, but a lot of it is, is dialogue free. And, and like, you know, we talked about in that episode, how like, um, you, you kind of can throw on, we, we would like to throw on films before we record to kind of listen for, you know, important 
scenes or get those earworms or whatever. But this is one of those where it's a lot harder to do that. You know, a few notable sequences accepted just because so much of it is is visually oriented. And if you're not watching it, you're really not uh, immersed in the narrative in in a way you might be in with some of his other films. Yeah, it takes a while to get to one of those like sort of classic Wiseman scenes. I think it's about like a little over an hour in where there's this this guy sort of holding court uh, somewhere around the racetrack talking about, you know, the way that the he saw some movie recently about oh, yeah. horses. You know, this horse can break his leg tomorrow. Just gallop. Where, where, where does it lead him? You know how fragile these horses are? Dr. Gilman put a film out. Everybody should go see the film. Did you see the film, Pete? It's a remarkable film about racing. All owners should go see it. When I see it, I was shocked. And I, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world. When horses stride out, they come down so much, and they're actually, they're set, yeah. It's 40,000 pounds. It's remarkable. Yeah. It, it, it almost turns back. That's a super film. Yeah. I couldn't believe it when I seen it. It's a super, super film. And it's like there's this huge yeah, crowd of people around him listen, just listening to him talk. Um, but it takes so super, long super to get film. There. Super film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I want to know what the, the film he <laughs> saw was. So was yeah, I, it was funny. I, I put in my notes that that guy was reminding me of um, Paul Servino, and it was like the day before he died that uh, I was watching it. But like oh, he, he was really giving me those kind of vibes. Um, you know, I mean, I think there are some some earlier ones. You know, I think for me, the first kind of key, like. Oh, you know, aside from, of course, Weissman's going to show us the birth and the breeding, you know, uh, but as far as like people talking goes, it was the um, kind of union meeting. We all realize exactly how hard George really worked to accomplish what he did. I mean, we started out a couple of years ago. We had a crappy uh, hospitalization plan. Everybody knows they used to give you like six dollars a day and two dollars to go around the corner. And by himself, George, by, and without any backing, he went by himself to the Blue Cross, the Blue Shield, and he managed to get the wraparound, which is the million-dollar plan that's called the wraparound. Everybody was telling him, no, you can't do it. George didn't listen to nobody. The truth of the matter is that. He just kept going until he got it. Now the life insurance. For, for $10,000, we were paying like 90-something dollars. Now for $20,000, you're paying like $120, $110. You can't get that nowhere in the world on the outside. I just want to make, you know, bring out the accomplishments that George did by himself. This, like, pan, uh, uh, like, occupational union, like, throughout, it covered, I think, like, vets and, you know, jockeys and trainers and, like, there are a bunch of different uh, interests represented there, but like that was one where it's like, okay, this is like you know, right in Fred's wheelhouse kind of thing. Right. Yeah. This guy is like in this this small room full of tables, and you know, ha- he's he's seems like a blue collar guy, and he's talking about like how these two groups have formed to like navigate their understandings and like something about a national group and a New York group. Um. And the guy's like, yeah, he got the wraparound. He got the he got the yeah, yeah. the wrap the wraparound plan. I keep saying, um, but uh, that yeah, that's obviously in his wheelhouse. But it, it's something that like I think by the nature of Wiseman's approach, we 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 see a lot like, which is a scene that doesn't spell out exactly what's going on, but is like hinting at maybe like a, a darker structure that's causing this discussion. 
mm-hmm. we're seeing like the fact that these um, blue collar workers like have to fight to get insurance for themselves. Um, and, you know, you're getting a sense that a lot of um, a lot of it is similar to the store in that like there's this prestige for certain people, but a lot of it is built on the backs of these like lower class people. Yeah. And I, I, th- I thought a lot about the store, actually, um, when you get to the later scenes at the the big ballroom um, mm. event um, and thinking about the way that uh, the store ends. Um, yeah, it's, it is. It almost there's almost this build of um, starting with the, you know, very literally the dirty work, right, of, uh, you know, the, yeah. the horse giving birth and then the breeding scene, which is, you know, I think very... Uh, very sterile um and then there's that very long surgery scene actually i thought of primate mostly during the surgery scene Mm -hmm. um and i thought about how um when i finished watching that movie and i was just like you know chilled to the bone and horrified and then reading (laughs) about it and reading about how wiseman thinks of it like a comedy um (laughs) i thought of i thought about that at the surgery scene i think it, it it you can see kind of how he seems to think it's almost like there's this absurdity with all of these kind of medical devices being hooked up to a horse. Um, It's such a strange scene. It's funny you say that because uh, Eric Marsh was talking to me about it and he, he referenced real life. There's a horse scene in real life where Charles Grodin Grodin just like, you know, it's just this farcical scene. Um, uh, so that that's kind of he's funny, like but. distracted by being filmed to the degree that he like over anesthetizes the horse and kills it and it's caught you know in the documentary but yeah I, I hadn't thought of that that's really funny but I mean that horse that surgery scene is like kind of the scene before you even start the film you know that something like this is gonna come up yeah at some yeah. point right it's like Weissman and animals you know so, something bad is going to happen to one of them and it's like you know kind of thanking your lucky stars that that this is a a return to black and white um for for that in particular yeah because there is that that distancing that goes on because of it whereas like you know even something as brief and like relatively uninvolved as like the tail docking scene in monrovia i think Mm -hmm. is is kind of more shocking even because it is in color right yeah, and there's um, yeah, I mean, there's a scene in Belfast that's pretty brutal. There's yep. some, <laughs> some stuff in in Jackson Heights. Uh, there's um, uh, there's some really uh, brutal stuff in Zoo, uh, as you might imagine. But um, but also like there's a there's a birth in Zoo that recalls this mm-hmm. um, as well, and it also deals with um the attention between like this human surveillance and uh, like observation of something natural and whether they intervene or how they intervene. Um, just, uh, so kind of going into this, you are kind of like, and, and also the, 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 um, the sex of the horses in the beginning, you're like thinking about that primate scene where they're like, you know, making <laughs> right. them have sex yeah. in, in the, in the cage. Um, so yeah, it is, you are definitely, anticipating it of of those introductory scenes too it's like we get the the introduction to kind of the horses running free in the field but then it's like birth and then it's breeding and i think we should talk about like that sequencing a little bit um Mm -hmm. because like right that's not how life works um but like like i think it speaks to 
um, both kind of how cyclical this is, you know, how the studs and the fillies are like repeatedly used for breeding. And it just, it's, uh, <laughs> I, I was reminded of something, uh, Gene Pingator says in hoop dreams when William graduates and he's like <laughs> one out the door, another one in the door. Um, and, yeah. and that's like, you know, exactly the situation going on with this horse's womb. <laughs> um, but it, it's also a thing that's like the the birth, and I think the reason that comes after this kind of scene of like kind of an idyllic pastoral uh, sequence is like this is the most natural moment of their life, and from here on out they're going to be under the dominion of like various humans, and like you know like so enjoy this birth while you got it because like everything else is just going to be completely unnatural and subservient. Yeah. I think Wiseman is really try- breaking down these sort of um, what we take for granted in terms of what is natural for in racetrack for the horses to do and, in, you know, in other animal films for other animals to do. Um, there's that line at the end of the film when they're interviewing the jockey and sort of watching the footage of the race. And the interviewer says, I wrote it down, he says something like that when he moved, he did not move really at your urging. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, this idea that like trying to sort of create this idea that like oh this is this is just what horses do right like they they horses run like they would do this even if we weren't riding them um but i think the whole film is really about like interrogating that idea of and really breaking down this you know mm-hmm. assumption that any of this is natural it's like no not all of this is completely programmed and and, and choreographed at every level yeah yeah there's some really interesting stuff about like the parts of the horses that that humans can't control and like how they deal with that. Um, like the owners are talking about like how a horse doesn't like mud or like when a horse is like lost his confidence, like these intangible things that sort of undercut how much they're, they're able to control them. And I think uh, typically we, we find ways that like people like usually ones under the control of the institution in Wiseman films, like cut against the grain and keep the institution from, from moving very smoothly and I think that here he's using the horse as a good example of, of that because it, it, they're an entirely different species and one that the humans can't communicate with. And so we end up with like this conjecture, like loss of, loss of confidence and like this frustration. And so it's just like so beautiful when he, he like catches one of them saying like, I've been threatening to castrate him for every time I walk by the stall, he runs out and goes to bite me like that. I said, the vet's coming tomorrow and I keep putting it off, putting it off. <laughs> I got an excuse. He came up a little suspensory, so I'll just do everything at once. Mm. Uh, jokingly, but like it is sort of like this thing, you know, this this uh, exertion of like power, like this ultimate power or whatever, or this ultimate thing that they can do to like uh, regain that over them. Yeah, the that that moment in particular about like the joke about threatening castration. You know, we uh, you you and I, Sean, both watched uh, the Marx Brothers film. Uh, day at the races, that was mm-hmm. and 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 um, you know, knowing that Weissman is a big Marx Brothers head and and loves the film, you know, I figured there'd be some connections <laughs> and parallels. There weren't many, but um, <laughs> no. that that was one moment where I was thinking of the kind of climactic race with Hi Hat and the joke of they keep going back to the owner that the horse hates and like putting the microphone in front of him to like kind of scare <laughs> him to run faster you know like that that, re- that 
all reminded me of this, this owner horse yeah. uh, antagonism. Um, but this this concept of like you know Esther this this like finding the the space between you know man controlling horse and horse you know doing what it's going to do it it is this the sentiment that's brought up throughout the film at at various places you know I think I think that um, trainer we were talking about just a little bit ago like he says something along the lines like most trainers most trainers praise themselves well if it wasn't for me I got a lot of nonsense let me tell you something it wasn't <laughs> For the pedigree that we have, and these good horses become good horses, these trainers are all nonsense. Let me tell you something makes a trainer, makes a jockey, is a horse. Something I think we we know is kind of self-evident, but, um, you know, maybe you'd expect these people who who devote so much time and their lives to it, you know, the, the pastor during uh, the sermon sequence says, you know, people tell him it's a seven-day-a-week job, to, to think they have a bit more, you know, like, uh, are owed a bit more credit necessarily than they seem to profess. Right. You know, they seem to really do place, you know, a lot of, 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 of the, the credit for wins and, and stuff on the horses themselves, which I mean, you know, they're the ones running, so it makes sense. But yeah, I think this, that that's one of the kind of central, uh, dynamics and, and dialectics going on here. And Wiseman, in that jockey sequence at the end, he really, he hides him, which I thought was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, I think to that point, um, you know, there's the audio of him talking, but he's really not on screen for most of it. Um, And I think that speaks to that, that idea of um, sort of, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, they will sort of pay lip service to the idea that, well, you know, it's really the horse, but you you can't interview the horse at the end of the race, you know, so... Um, but I think Wisewood is really sort of deliberately trying to take our attention off of that, off of the jockey. You get the sense that the jockeys are really like in a lose-lose situation where like, you know, you hear like the guys talk about the owners are doing, so, you know, putting so much money on the line that when a horse wins, like sometimes the owner deserves a lot of credit uh, or sometimes like a jockey is like, you know, really proud that they won and people are just kind of like, you didn't do anything. Like it's the horse or like if the, if you know, the horse loses, then it's like, uh, it comes back to like this comment about how the jockey weighs too much for the horse to win Mm. type stuff. And it's like, the jockey will never get credit. (laughs) Um, there was another line though, kind of going back to what we were talking about, about this, like this tension between, uh, control, uh, of these two species and I like this line um, towards the beginning. We see like a lot of, we spend a lot of time in, in the stables, which there's also some really good sound stuff in there that we could talk about. But um, uh, there's uh, this uh, scene that cuts to this guy who's just like shoveling hay around into corners around this horse. And he says like, You're not trying to help me out at all, man. And he like says it again. And, and he's clearly joking. But... Um, it made me think of this line in, in Barry Keith Grant's um, opening to uh, Voyages of Discovery, where he talks about like how Wiseman will frequently use a line of dialogue in a way that is not how the speaker intended it. Um, not not like trying to mix their words or make them look stupid or anything like that, but but to see how it will reverberate across the film. And um, and there's a, there's a really significant uh, use of this later in the film, but. Um, but I, I, on second watch, that one really stuck out to me as like this funny moment um, that he's really just kind of like keeping there uh, for you to like see how um, a lot of people see these horses. Like the fact that 
um, when he's injured, all they care about is whether he's going this this horse is going to be able to recover mm-hmm. in order to serve them better, right? That type of stuff. Yeah, the the I mean, I think this the stable stuff is it's almost too brief, but it sets it sets in motion this structure that actually was reminding me of um, Ascension, Jessica Kingdon's film of like you know first we get the stable hands. Then we kind of get like trainers and jockeys before, you know, at the end, uh, getting to to the big ballroom scene with the owners. Right. And there's this this uh, hierarchy at play here where, you know, and and there's a hierarchy within uh, the viewing public, too. Right. Of like like kind of people out there placing two dollar bets. We see the sign with the fifty dollar minimum bet line. And we just know, you know, from just kind of like the culture. And it's obviously uh evidence in the ballroom scene but like that that this is like a very moneyed hoity-toity thing and someone mentions you know these horses are worth millions of dollars and like you know we all have these ideas of like the the kentucky derby with like ladies in big fancy hats and stuff um but like that's that's another one of these competing dialectics of like like you know the 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 workers and the laborers uh you know chief among which are the horses themselves and and the people who are profiting off of it all and uh you know it's it's uh, i guess this was filmed in 81 right um and you know uh, the the belmont uh racetrack you know had been in in operation for decades at this time and it's only at this point right that they're winning these uh insurance concessions um so like you know you'd get the sense that there's this history of exploitation going on beyond obviously the horses and um but also of everyone that within the operation um all the way down to i guess like uh, concession stands right everybody in the operation the um the ballroom scene made me think a lot of a great scene in central park actually um where you have this um this luncheon being held by these, uh, you know, rich old ladies who live in the Upper West Side and they're trying to raise money for the <laughs> oh, park. Yeah. And it's great because when they talk about the park, um, they sort of very quickly betray that, like, they don't go to the park, right? They just look at it from their, you know, right. high-rise apartment windows. And that sort of distance between, like, this thing that they are raising money for ostensibly because they care about it, but really because it's more of, you know, a... a a sign of social status that they can do mm-hmm. this. Um, and their, their literal physical distance from it. Um, it made me think of that in, in the, these ballroom scenes with these owners that are so, you know, separated by, you know, the structure editing of the film from the, from the horses and from sort of the day-to-day maintenance of, of caring for them. Yeah. I, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because um, there's also like, he puts that scene there and then goes from there to like this, this like race and at the end of the race we get to see john morris the man who is being commemorated him and his wife like leaving the racetrack and it's like they're so like flustered or they they just look like uncomfortable and it it seems like wiseman is like clearly like has arranged the order of these scenes so that we see like them like sort of you know away from this place where they're being honored for like his lifetime achievements to like actually within the milieu of the racetrack and the people that he benefits from and they're just not comfortable um yeah they're they're amongst the riffraff yeah like like it's it's 
it's which I guess is is a special thing about the whole institution, right? Is it is it does bring together these disparate economic classes um, for you know a shared activity, and I guess that's kind of like the key of uh, American leisure, you know, from like professional sports things we'll see in the garden uh, later on, um, all the way down to you know uh, Central Park, you know, just like you're talking about. Um, but like the one one thing. Um, I really want to make sure we get to is uh, what this film is saying about and doing with television. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, there are so many scenes of people watching TV in this film, and most of the time when we see a race, it's uh, on the TV. It's not of the race itself. And, you know, the last episode about the store we talked about like briefly that that shot of et and like weissman kind of positioning self in in opposition to you know kind of dominant narrative filmmaking um but but weissman also occupies this really unique position uh straddling the line between film and television right because all of his films end up on on public television and and so he is at once in opposition to that but also a part of it and how there seems to be at least among the the gamblers the betters like um a preference for watching it on tv there's there's a desire for mediation and you know i mean you think of like people who like to bring like their radios to baseball games or something and like listen listen to the commentary live mm-hmm. um but this is sort of a different thing right like like they're 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 at the race but they're they're missing it in a sense they're not they're not actually seeing it but they're they're experiencing it still in in their own unique way and like you know we'll we'll talk about the sermon scene later but this there's that that chief idea of like pleasure versus joy and maybe like television versus reality i don't know what's going on there exactly but i I think there's something but there's just there's just too many tvs going on to not think it's key i think there's a there's an interesting irony to the idea of like you i think the implication is that most of the people who are watching it on tv um they wouldn't understand what was going on if they weren't, it wasn't being narrated, right? Mm-hmm. They can't maybe just from watching it, see which horse is which and who's actually, who's out in front and what's happening unless mm. they're having it described to them, which, you know, you requires that's mediation as you were talking about. Um, and definitely I think, yeah, very heavy irony in the idea of going to the racetrack just to watch the race on TV <laughs> because you wouldn't really understand it otherwise. It, it, yeah, that that's interesting. I, I um, those are both things that I uh, did not come across, but was trying to think what else he was doing with this. All of these shots, and I mean, we see like we don't only see horse races; we also see like yeah. betting info and the Price is Right, and I think a couple of dramas, like maybe a mystery show in in a soap opera. Yeah, and like have to wonder like what. Uh, like what all is he thinking about in terms of like images and how, you know, messages are being transmitted to the public, yada, yada. Um, but uh, I don't know. It, it seems like he's maybe 
there, there's one shot in particular, this great shot of these two TVs side by side, where one right. is the race and, and one is a soap opera. And I think along with the inclusion of the pri- prices right earlier, like maybe he's conflating like these, these types of like performed drama and like televised contest with the performance and like gambling aspect of, of horse races, which complements the ways that you guys were talking about this, like mediation of uh, real life. Yeah, the the Price is Right scene, I don't know, it's so brief, but it really resonated with me. It comes early on, and it's amidst kind of like this more kind of rambunctious scene of like uh, leisure and like some kind of break room setting. But then it's just this one older white guy in like, looks like a sauna. I don't know. It's like got wood paneling. Yeah, I know. You know, like he's, and he's all by himself uh, watching the Price is Right, and he has this like, look of just like joy on his face watching it and and you know it it seems to have nothing to do with anything you know but like here it is this kind of like moment of solitude and like personal gratification amidst i guess like the hustle and bustle of horses and owners and betters and like i you know i i think there's probably something about the price is right itself too right which is a show where people are just like throwing out numbers and in, in the hopes of winning a bunch of money um and also i i do wonder like um because he shot this in 81 and then edited it and it came out in 86 and um which was delayed like partially because of other projects but also because of funding and within that he was struggling with um the store for that yeah, funding to yeah. happen and i and his, he's being like very vocal um in publications about how he feels about public television and so i wonder also if if it's um lucrative to read into this like sort of bitter undertones of like what is on tv that is worth showing that that the networks think is worth showing and he's showing like soap operas and the price is right um i don't know i think i think that's spot on it it, it was something i was thinking about too You, you kind of think of like look at look at what does get funded look at what is supported on tv look at what does have you know infrastructure around it to to uh you know transmit it to countless americans you know and and like um fuck them you know right (laughs) like like you know and and we we could talk about you know whether you guys think there's um a critique inherent here or if it's just kind of like more of a an impressionistic sort of portrait of of the racetrack but like um that was that's something where i think you know um, you, you feel, I, th- I think you feel some of that bitterness, you know? Yeah. I, I think it's worth thinking about also in terms of uh, horse racing is as, you know, thinking about it as a sport, um, is unique. I mean, one, it's unique because the competitors are animals, right? They're not humans except for the jockeys, but also it is more than any other sport. It is tied into gambling. Mm-hmm. Um, like if you made a movie called baseball stadium, um, there's sports betting in every sport, obviously, but like you don't think of baseball as a sport that's about betting on the games, right. but yeah. you know, horse racing exists to bet on it. Um, so it's really like intrinsically tied in with this, um, you know, so this is the closest, closest he's come to casino is what you're saying. <laughs> I, I mean, basically, yeah. Like the interjection of money into what, um, is otherwise just a normal competition, 
um, but which also inherently isn't a normal natural competition because you're forcing animals to participate in it. Yeah, it, it actually, the only thing it was reminding me of um, as it relates to that was like in Florida, there's this whole scene with Hylai um, that I guess exists still just for people to gamble on. Um, um, but there, there's a, a really solid short doc you could find on Vimeo called Forgotten about um, contemporary highlight players that, that I was thinking of and, you know, thinking of, of humans as like these these beasts of burden, of, of like gambling burden. I don't know, um, uh, seem, seem to be fruitful and related to the jockeys. Um, have, have either of you ever um, been, to, been to a racetrack? No, I haven't. I just found out there's one in in Detroit, but I haven't been yet. I've I've been once. There's one um, here in Albany, uh, just just north of Berkeley, uh, Golden Gate Fields, and I went I went one time on St. Patrick's Day where they put so much green dye in the beer. It was disgusting. <laughs> uh, um, but it's it's an interesting experience just because like. You, you're trying to gamble but like i don't know one horse from another right like i don't know like like all you could do is go off funny names and like i i didn't win anything because the funny name horses are slow i guess <laughs> <laughs> but like like i guess there was there was this scene earlier on with this like um female announcer who who kind of had um uh, i think mamber noted sounded like Barbara Wawa, the the Gilda Radner character, <laughs> um, but she's kind of like you know. Music of time on the inside, a stakes-winning son of Northern Dancer. Northern Dancer won the Kentucky Derby and the Preakness, but he failed in the Belmont Stakes. He was defeated by Kauai King. These are very sensitive animals, very high strung given a little history and like i'm like is this when the serious people kind of come earlier in the day before the races to like size them up and like you know Mm. see how they run or something it's like how how are people making their their gambling decisions you know yeah she does have a funny list like present so and so yeah um i i i wanted to to kind of like talk about like uh actually a friend of the show uh previous guest Jesse Cataldo uh wrote something on on Letterbox about like uh about this film and he said that um he said that Wiseman's films are like uh split between institutions that are like self-evident like necessary institutions like welfare office or hospital for, like obviously like and then there are some that are just like seemingly frivolous um where like they don't really need to exist. Uh, they're sort of like supplementary to, to social life like this, like a racetrack. Um, and, but, but he kind of talks about like how that like under Wiseman's eye that you start to see them as like this miniature world with their own like processes. Um, which made me think a lot about like a scene um, and how, we see like here a lot of the ways that we've been talking about and some of the ways that we haven't really talked about yet, like how much like race is exposed um, in this as like a stratified thing within the, Mm -hmm. within the confines. Um, But uh, it it reminded me of a scene because 
of the way that that like this is like this closed off like like pious society that just as we talked about on that episode like adopted the structure of the outside world um and so within racetrack like we start to see like the the different ways that that like uh the larger american society establishes itself here um and one of the, one edit that i wanted to mention before i forgot that that um something you said earlier reminded me of arlen but um uh, that I didn't definitely didn't catch this the first time around, but um, there is a shot of like some people watching. Oh, there's a handful of like characters watching a, a race, and um, you know, one of them uh, is like a young black man, and he has like a fro- like an afro, and is like yelling and jumping and, and screaming. And then there's like a Hispanic man with like a cowboy hat and a lasso, and he's like yelling. And then um, and then it shows another woman uh, of color and, um, she's just, you know, rooting for a horse or whatever. And there's this great cut, uh, right from that to like this box, um, that these like three white guys in suits that you've seen like this long middle shot and they're all watching through like binoculars. Um, and it just like gives you like this, I I don't think he's being reductive, like, I don't think he's trying to be reductive about uh, what the racetrack is like, but just kind of giving you a sense of the, the stratification. Um, and we see that through like um, the billiard hall and where obviously that guy's like uh, a copy of uh, the invisible man yeah, is yeah. like sticking out of his pocket. Yeah. But uh, again, it like kind of reminds me of the store and the way that Miriam Bale talked about that is like this backstage front stage thing that we see. Mm-hmm. But, but that, that one shot in particular to this box um, is just like one of those things that is sort of like the gift of, of coming back to Wiseman movies is like to see these juxtapositions. Um, like even when you're like, yes, I've seen, like, 20 Wiseman films. Like, I know what's going on. I can watch it. I pick it up. And and then, like, there are still going to be those that, like, in, until you have, like, sort of a lay of the land um, and you come back to them, um, you're just not going to catch everything that he's going on that, that, like, he's doing here, which, like, I'm sure there's still plenty that I'm missing in Racetrack. Yeah, I think, I think you know, this this does seem to be one of the under-considered, under-seen uh, Weissman films, you know, like like for really sure. low. Um, but one thing I think it it's really notable for is like just being a great example of how of these like sequences Weissman loves of, of faces and they're just like so many interesting faces you know, throughout and like like we were talking about earlier, you know not a ton of dialogue but like through these kind of scene milieus of people watching the races or people in the break rooms, you know, they're just people listening to the sermon. Um, there's, there's just such a great variety and and of types of faces. Um, and you know, you, you really get away from the horses and, and like feel the humanity of it all in these moments. Um, but like the, I, I thought, you know, amongst Weissman's body of work, this is maybe the one I would point to if like, you know, if, if exemplary of, of those kind of scenes. And then also the um, the absence of people at the ending. There's this mm-hmm. very striking sequence of shots of um, yes. the racetrack has been abandoned and there's just trash just just flying in the air. I think someone's like blowing it up into bags with a leaf blower or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and just again, just kind of returning to this this like silence at the beginning of the film um, that I found I found so evocative. Um, really, you know. Uh, drawing to your mind that contrast of um, 
this place that is so bustling and that is so full of life, um, but that is uh, contingent on this thing taking place that we've been sort of explaining the workings of. Yeah, it it feels so ephemeral in that moment. Like there's all this yeah. Russian excitement yeah. and there's like this big upset and then it's just like gone. Yeah. Which which mirrors the horse racing itself, right? There's like all this lead up to it, uh so much training and preparation and you know this whole infrastructure that buses people out to Belmont, you know, and then it the it's over like that, you know. They run around kinda like, once and uh. kind of like gambling. <laughs> like, yeah. You're right. Yeah, but I mean, I think, um, Esther, like, the ending for me is really key, especially as it relates to the sermon. The Easter season is a season of joy. And in order to understand joy, we should distinguish it from pleasure. Pleasure is an, an emotion which occurs when a bodily desire is satisfied through the possession of a, of a material thing. And so we have pleasure when we are eating chocolate ice cream, for example. We are pleasure-seeking beings just because we are sentient, and we're just reminded that pleasure is good so long as it is controlled by reason. Now, on the other hand, joy is a sentiment which takes place when a desire of our soul is satisfied by the possession of a spiritual value the 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 pleasure joy um whole thing where it's like you know the the uh we put god second you know we (laughs) yeah back back to the scene but like I mean, well, first off, you know, this is the last place I expected, the last film I expected to have yeah, a, yeah. Uh, some I, kind of that, scene you, of religion. You found know. a way to sneak in a church scene even into this it's, one. Yeah, it's like, what what the hell's going on here? It's like, like hmm, who, what's who, this who, chapel? It, yeah, right? Do, do they have, like, their own, yeah, like, little chapel with, their, yeah, like, a yeah. minister on site all the time, you know? Or is this, like, a special thing? Or, like, we don't know, but, like... Like, this whole concept of, like, you know, we put God second for, like, worldly pleasures and, like, television depresses us and, like, fast food depresses us. And, and there's there's all these, you know, like, ephemeral earthly pursuits that we're all wrapped up in. And meanwhile, you know, the true spiritual joy eludes us because we're weighed down by all of this. And, I mean, to me, that that is the key to seeing this as as a critique for Weisman of the whole institution of like you know this this whole thing is kind of what all this attention and and resource and and time is is bent on you know this thing that once it's over is nothing more than like you know an empty trash heap right like it there, it is ephemeral and and like fleeting and like you know there's no uh it it's full of you know pain and death for horses and pain for the jockeys you know and like like you know why why this thing you know i guess going kind of to jesse's um uh comments you were talking about like you know like like this this doesn't have to exist but it does and like so many people are committed to making sure that it does and will continue to do so um but like like you know to what end like what's really the point of it all yeah yeah well well first of all i was going to say when, when he's talking about uh joy his 
he will he says like pleasure is like you know like eating chocolate ice cream or whatever he's like enjoy you know that's spiritual that's like you know for instance birth of a child child, child goes to college it's like okay anything else <laughs> anything not involving a child and then there's certain there's nothing spiritual about the birth we see at the beginning of the film either. it's <laughs> it is very stark in how it's presented yeah, that's a really good point. And and they say during that, you know, birth, like, oh, look at this. Look at nature. Look how beautiful it is. Look at it. They also say, uh, she's tripping. She's waxed. Yeah, and they're talking about Lamaze and stuff. Um, but, but what you're talking about, Arlen, um, like, he cuts on the thing, right? Like, he cuts on the guy saying, like, um, the, the thing about, like, life is rushing by. And sometimes we wonder whether we grasp its meaning. There's like this ephemeral uh, quality to the whole thing that 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 uh, Wiseman seems to be struggling with as like an observer of this of this place. Um, but also, I do like that that cuts pretty soon before we get to see John Morris, who is dead. <laughs> this came out, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, the I mean, and and I guess going back to what I was talking about earlier with TV, it's like you know, is is it joy? Is joy living in the moment and reality and and pleasure is watching reality play out on TV? You know, <laughs> like um, like it it kind of, I don't know some, something there, um, but you know, talking I guess about um, John Morris and the ballroom scene, you know. Um, it's such uh, it's so interesting because it is seemingly the same kind of thing that we were just discussing of ephemerality like there isn't a whole lot of substance to anything that's being said right they're all like john's been involved in racing for a while he's a good guy john gets up there and says next to nothing besides like flubbing uh, Mm -hmm. a line about uh Profits go to the building up of our portfolio and helping raise our beneficiaries from misery to poverty. <laughs> Something like that, <laughs> you that, know. That was, that was wow. <laughs> and like, um, uh, you know, it starts off. He spends a lot of time with the band, just like watching them play songs. And then closes also with the band's rendition of New York, New York, uh, which I was kind of surprised had already become such a, a staple at this time with uh, Scorsese's film only coming out, of, uh, I guess, four years before that. Um, but, um, you know, it, it even though it's elevated in like a socioeconomic sense, like the it's still a thing of pleasure, arguably, and not joy, I guess. Right. Like it it it. The, there's no substance to anything oh, happening sure. here, you know. Yeah, I, I think. The, Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think that maybe speaks to why there are so few scenes of people talking at all in the whole movie. Um, like we mm-hmm. were saying earlier, you know, like what I mean, what what really is there to say about about anything that's happening? Um, there's there's just you know they're horses and we're gonna make them run in a circle Um, look look at this weird little toy isn't that kind (laughs) of neat you know (laughs) yeah i think um i wouldn't say it's not a critique but um but i think all of this is like open-ended like all of the this like 
it, it's not he doesn't seem to have like an answer or like he does i don't i don't get the feeling that wiseman knows exactly what to make of this uh place mm-hmm. and which i think is is a beautiful part of the movie so it doesn't feel like as um succinct a critique as as like the store or or model um in some senses but like there's just sort of like this like trying to grasp with this but also trying to grasp with like um our social pastimes and Mm -hmm. the labor that it takes to create those and what like this like like all of this labor and leading to these fleeting moments like but also he is like uh i think taken with um the way that people are are here um and it brings people together and so there's just like this like clash Mm -hmm. of you know it's a conflict and um and I, I don't think I don't think it, it's coming down one where I mean I don't think it's easy to to just like yeah. sort of like put a bow on it. For sure. I mean, it's Weissman, so it's you know yeah. it's never it's never easy. But yeah, I mean, I think the um, I, I wonder about what you're talking about here. Maybe him not knowing what to make of it, like if that played a role in uh, in along with the funding situation of like mm. putting putting it down doing the store and then coming back to to edit the footage he had if like you know maybe he he was having trouble kind of figuring out you know like like what am i going to make of all this moved on and and kind of came back with fresh eyes yeah because it, i th- i think this is the first instance of that happening is that mm-hmm. to your knowledge is that yeah yeah i i think it will happen again but yeah yeah um I'm just kind of like going through the Rolodex of things um, before we, we wrap up. But um, I did want to talk about this scene uh, that, that I mentioned earlier in the stables earlier with you guys um, and how he's using sound. Um, just like we get a couple shots of like boom boxes um, mm. or whatever you want to call them, but uh, playing these songs and, and Mamber, uh, Mamber talks about uh, how the song playing is still by Lionel Richie. And it's like the first song oh, yeah. to be played in that version. Obviously we get, um, we get, um, uh, the folly song in model, but, um, it's the first song to be used twice in its original version. In a in a Wiseman movie, it was also used in model, but, um, but it's a great example. Like, you know, he shoots, he shoots this boom box and then, um, you hear that song playing out, but he's like surveying the stable and um, you know, he's cutting between like horses eating and like, uh, like ranch hands, like doing stuff. And he's obviously like cheating the sound, but like, you know, turns this thing that's diegetic to like non-diegetic and mixing it in with actual diegetic like sounds or like cheating the, cheating the non-music sounds, Mm. you know? And um, it's, it's just kind of like, it's beautiful to start to understand for me, like the complexity of, of the work that's going into it. Like you don't need to understand what he's doing, but like, Mm. I guess it's just like a Wiseman head. Like, it's just kind of like cool to understand, like, or get a better picture of like exactly what, like all the labor that is going on to make this scene feel natural to feel like we are there uh, with the horses and the songs playing and like people are passing us by and all this yeah. stuff. Um, it's just really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I did have the sense that he was taking maybe increased license with like 
the layering of his sound design here in terms of like you know diegetic and and, and just what might be coming from you know other recordings uh, while he was there um, but it, it, it did seem to me like he was really if not not taking liberties but I guess you know using using sound to what you're saying like paint paint this sort of impressionistic idea of like you know here's here's life at, at the stables here's life you know in the in the jockeys uh quarters or you know whatever you call it yeah he blasts one of those tv shows in the jockeys quarters <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 which is uh you know I, I i did really like you know both for the jockeys and i guess the stable hands too with the like the pool hall and stuff like there there's all this uh, leisure to the work of mm-hmm. leisure, right? Like, like you know, <laughs> like, like the the all all what's what's leisure for everybody else is labor for them, and mm-hmm. you know their their own breaks and leisure from <laughs> from their labor um, in order to make leisure for everyone else. That that was pretty striking to me, and and you know it's it's also just kind of nice to see uh, an arcade show up some video games show up in a weissman film for the, cool. the see, first bumper pool i, I haven't seen yeah. bumper pool in any <laughs> <time>. <laughs> sure um yeah how do you play that do the there's no pockets i didn't i didn't get it i don't anyway. remember my cousin's yeah. <laughs> table and I, I don't remember um are there are there are there any notes that you had esther that you wanted to touch on that we didn't uh, get to um i mean we talked about the surgery scene in primate i there i did note that the close-ups of the of that scene mm-hmm. are so, I mean, obviously very graphic, but it's like, you can't even tell what you're looking at most of the I know. Time. Yeah. It's so strange. Um, like it, 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 what, what part of the animal you're, you're looking at at any given moment. Um, yeah. Well, it's going to be funny to, when these are all like remastered, be like, oh, <laughs> true. <laughs> It'll finally yeah. be clear. Yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, my God, they, they really seem to be going to town on that horse's leg, yeah. you know, like, like they got drills going and bone saws and they're just like screwing stuff into him. And it's just like, and of course the horse Louise. has no idea what's going on, Yeah, which is I think part of that sort of dark comedy of it. Um, <laughs> the horse. what is, what is going, what is going on in the horse's head that all of this, all of these things are happening to it. And it, you know, there's like kind of an interesting thing Weissman does where he shows um, the people putting on this like janky looking foam thing on the horse's head. And you're like, what's mm-hmm. that about? They were just operating on his leg or whatever. Right. And then as he's starting to come out of his anesthesia, you know, he's trying to get up and just keeps falling over repeatedly, and, like part. smashing yeah. his head on the floor. Right. And you're like, oh, I get it. Like it's a, it's a helmet, you know, to keep him from just brain damage. I will say once I saw this, like the the like horses having sex, I thought I was in for like a real, like difficult. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now, I mean you know they got to keep them clean. That's the one thing I learned. You know, there's mm, a lot yeah. a lot of sanitation. Uh, yeah, for both parties some going there too that are, that are not the most pleasant. And you're just you're also wondering too, just because of the the level of human intervention in that scene, you're like, how does this work in the wild? Can they even do it? Like, <laughs> like how do they stay at like they're they're holding like yeah. his front legs like so he could stay mounted, you know? And it's just like like are are, are like racehorses specifically just like so 
bred for speed that they don't have like the same physical yeah. capabilities you know to just like act like a horse would in the wild i don't know but like uh, that's like yeah. primate as well the idea like just like the absurd idea that you're getting any real information about what these animals are actually like in a setting right. is like so far far removed as possible from you know the real world yeah so. for sure um, one one thing to I just you know we we talk a lot about like you know our our dream uh, alternate universe Weissmans but I, I did like the sequence we get a brief foray into what Weissman's diner might have been like. Um, oh yeah, I think this might be the first film with like food prep in it, which is mm. one of my favorite things. Uh, we had some at the the ballroom in the store. Which is the last oh film. okay, yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, I, I think that, that it seemed to be like some kind of, uh, eatery for like the workers at, at the stable. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that, that was just kind of a pleasurable thing because, you know, going way back, Sean, your, your experience, uh, at the diner, seeing everything as a Weissman film, you know, just right. like that, that would have been a, a good one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed. All right. Well, Esther, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Racetrack. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh, sorry, thank you. And, um, well, I, I do want to ask, I know, like, as I, especially this year, I've kind of, like, covered up some, like, uh, Wiseman, f- like, film, like, blind spots that I was, like, I know that's going to be, like, probably a biggie, and then I, like, watch them. But are there any that, like, you haven't gotten to yet that you're, like, excited uh at the prospect of, of finally getting to? Um, well, I think the next ones I have are the um, blind and deaf films, which I've really mm-hmm. been, really been waiting for um, to get to. And That's then it. Central Park was a big one. I've gotten to that one. Um, and um, I'm really curious about uh, Ex Libris. Very excited. Mm-hmm. That'll be like, that's one of the last ones, of course. But yeah. 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 I'm excited for you. I'm excited for us. <laughs> and the the deaf and blind films but yeah alright well, well happy watching Esther and thanks again thank you thanks so much I wanna wake up in the city that doesn't sleep to find I'm king of the hill and top of the heap my little time will I'm melting away I'll make a brand new style of it In old New York If I can make it there I'd make it anywhere It's up to you New York, New York